if we just pick up one seat next time um, and things aren't a lot better, I think there's going to be a mass mutiny. Hello and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. My guest on this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board is Holly McCall. Holly is the chair of the Williamson County Democratic Party and challenged Mary Mancini recently for the Tennessee Democratic Party chair position. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ben. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be on Nashville Sounding Board today. I know that kind of a funny story from when the first time I met you, I didn't know who you were, and I believe you were walking into a meeting for Nashville Next. Yes, correct. And I was out there with a petition for Amendment 3, the local hire amendment. And you were by no means a natural supporter of that amendment. But without knowing who you were, went up and talked to you about Amendment 3. And I signed the petition. And I'm glad you told that story because I was going to, if you didn't, because I said, look, I just don't think this is going to work. I'm not even sure it's legal. The state legislature is going to sign it down. And then, and then, but after talking to you for a couple of minutes, um, you talked me into signing it. And it seemed, I mean, I think it's a great idea. I just... Anyway, we won't. We you won't. were right that the state eventually struck it down because but. they do that with a lot of local issues. But yep, that's another topic for another time. Want to talk about kind of your motivations for running, uh, for challenging Mary, um, and your experiences? I guess also as a candidate yourself, and then running the Williamson County Party. I don't know where you want to start, but let's start with what motivated you to run for the chair position for the state party. So there were really several reasons. And one is, when I was 23, I worked at the State Democratic Party. And it was a different system then. We had a um, a weak um, chairman and strong executive director. So the chair was part-time, didn't take a salary. The executive director was, uh, was the full-time salaried person. And I thought it looked like a great job. And so at that time, I wanted to be, I thought, I'd love to be executive director one day. And then the job changed, the chair became full-time. And then I thought that would be a great job. So it's something I've been interested in off and on over the years. This time specifically, I think um, I found when I was traveling around the state running for office, and this gets to why I ran, there's a deep level of unhappiness among rank-and-file Democrats. And so for the past six months, probably, people have been coming to me and saying, we think you should run. And I was saying, no, I'm not going to run against Mary. I don't like primary-style fights. And finally, in early December, there were a handful of people, including uh, the major labor unions, AFL-CIO, Central Labor Council, and they sat me down and said, look, this is something that we really firmly believe you need to do. And, you know, those are folks I listen to. And so I thought about it for about 24 hours, kind of felt anxious, nauseous, but decided, well, if these people have their faith in me, I'm going to go ahead and do it. There were a lot of critiques of Mary, and I was able to talk to her, of course, on my last podcast. A couple of the key critiques uh, is that under her control, the party was too Nashville-centric, not enough support for candidates, uh, especially rural candidates. There was also talk of her salary. I believe she makes somewhere in the neighborhood of 100, 120 or so K a year. What were the kind of the main critiques that you levied? I know that you kind of talked about that candidate support piece as well. Yeah, I did run for the State House of Representatives in 2016 in Williamson County, and I knew it was going to be a tough race getting in. A Democrat had not run a full-own race with focused fundraising and direct mail and canvassing in I don't know how long. And 
but I tell the story. When I got in, I said to some of the people who asked me to run, I said, well, what are you all going to do for me? Are you going to help me? And they said, no, not much. And I said, well, are you going to help me raise money? And they said, no. And I said, well, you know, I'm a big girl. I know what I'm getting into. But in the last few electoral cycles, we've seen candidates get recruited. This last cycle, we had, I think, 90 state house candidates. And mm-hmm. and I appreciate the fact that... Which Mary took a lot of pride in. I think that was many more than in past years and maybe the most in two decades or so that, that had been fielded. Right. So I do appreciate the fact that Democrats had somebody to vote for. But on the other hand, some of the candidates were just bad. Um, there was a candidate who shall go un- unnamed, but talked about the deep state and used the F word on social media and in a wealthy district, completely wrong for the district. So we had some bad candidates. We had candidates who would have been great if they'd run on an even further down ballot, if they'd run for county commission, something mm-hmm. hyper local where they could get experience and name recognition. But they were running for state house or Senate without proper preparation. And then there Kinda was some overmatched. Yeah, exactly. And then there were some candidates who were great, but. They just didn't get the level of support. And I understand realistically that there's not enough financial support. The Democratic Party and the Democratic Caucus does not have enough financial support for everybody. But when candidates come out of a race with so much bitterness that they don't want to be involved anymore, that is a problem. And this is now at least the second cycle where we've gone through something like this. And, you know, one of my favorite expressions is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So I would say that is my one of my larger critiques, possibly my biggest. You had a sense that a lot of those candidates had have no interest in trying to run again? Yeah. I mean, when I ran in 2016, there were 26 or 27 women um, who we, we all ran together and we've stayed in touch. And there's still palpable bitterness from a number. They feel like they were used and hung out to dry. So I, I, when I started this podcast, one of the people I wanted to have on was Mary, and I, and I wanted to talk to her about that decision, about the decision to run a lot, a huge slate of female candidates in some part f- as a gesture, as a political statement, and whether or not she thought that that was basically a little too early. That is very well suited now, post-Trump, um, but maybe she was a cycle too early with the slate of, of uh, women. So, to be fair, I do not put all of that on Mary. There were several other people who were involved in that process in 2016. And I, I remember those conversations were based in part on the fact that Megan Barry had just gotten elected. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense that, wow, this woman got elected mayor. So w- when women run, women win. Let's and do you it. hear that you hear that phrase a lot. And because of the health care controversy. The stat is pretty amazing, right? It's like when, when women run, they win in equal numbers it, as, as it men. It is. If they are, the key is if they are funded the same way. Um, at like Emerge Tennessee, which I'm also involved in, is a women's candidate training program. We had a 40% success ratio this cycle. So um, I don't think anybody predicted Trump in 2016. Um, but I would also say that we lag behind other southern states in several metrics. And I think that is what continues to trouble Tennessee Democrats. When I, when, when I was out talking to them, they'd say Alabama, Mississippi, seem, they seem to be doing better than we are. So what are we doing that's not working? Well, so let's talk about that. I mean, for, for one thing, we're really low in voter participation. Um, but looking at 2016, I kind of asked the same question to Mary. Hillary Clinton got a little bit below 35 percent of the vote against Trump. Bredesen couldn't come within 10 percent, and Dean lost by 20 percent. Mm-hmm. And so we're a deeply, deeply red state, 
as are Alabama and Mississippi. But what's kind of the path forward, and and what are we not doing, perhaps, that other states in similar positions are doing well? You know, certainly Alabama had a great opportunity with the Roy Moore um, in the Doug Jones race. It was a special election, and Roy Moore was just an epically terrible candidate. In the case of Carl Dean, who was a good candidate, Bill Lee was not a terrible candidate. He's not. And I grew up with his family. I did 4-H with his brothers and sisters, and he had my brother. I mean, so I know enough about him to know that I might not agree with his politics, but he is a decent He is a decent person. So you really couldn't – it was hard to hit him. Um, we've got to work on our messaging, and there's no silver bullet. There's no easy answer to that. But what the Democratic Party is saying is not resonating. Nashville and Memphis are very blue areas. I'm not sure they know what the message is, but they don't. They know that they're going to vote for Democrats, and I don't think the DNC does the South any favors. And we are, we're just not we're not connecting. We've got to find a way to change our messaging. And as I said, there are no silver bullets, and some people don't like to hear it. But we're not going to get out of this rut in two years or four years. So we've got to start eating the elephant a bite at a time. No pun intended. Bredesen's stance on Kavanaugh, saying that he would vote to confirm hurt Bredesen with volunteers. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people were frustrated with Bredesen for taking that stance. The national debate around Kavanaugh, regardless of whether or not it was justified in the right thing for national Democrats to, to do, hurt Democrats here. It totally hurt Democrats here. And I don't know if you've had the chance to talk to anybody from Bredesen's campaign, but I understand their polling saw a significant downturn after that. Um yeah, I don't know that it, there was clearly a blue wave elsewhere in the country. It did not translate here. Having said that, I don't know that running somebody, I think we should run somebody more progressive next time. I think Phil Bredesen's a fine person. His politics have always been too conservative for me. I wasn't surprised by any of that because that's who he is. He's always been a centrist. He's always been a moderate. I am more liberal than he is. Uh, so I think we'll see whoever the nominee is for the Senate in 2020. James Mackler's already announced and he's already come out is more progressive and openly liberal than Bredesen. So we'll see how that plays. I I think it's still a tough haul. So in terms of wanting more liberal candidates, that's something that sort of the activists base in the Democratic Party hear a lot of talk, frustration that the two top of the ticket uh, guys were both guys, were both white men, very moderate, businessy. But on the flip side, how do you think that a real liberal candidate would play statewide? I mean, is that is that really the answer? So I think that get, some of that gets back to messaging, because when we talk about being liberal or progressive, we've let the Republicans define what that means. Okay. And when I think progressive, I go back to Franklin Roosevelt, who was considered wildly liberal and almost communist at the time. But, you know, to me, when I hear progressive, I think that is about human rights, and that is the right to be able to make a decent living. The Republicans like to talk about the fact that we have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation, but they don't mention the fact that we have the highest number of minimum wage jobs. You can't take care of your family that way. So we should be talking about you know, the right to support your family, the right to get the kind of education you want, uh, the right to have a health, to have a hospital in your neighborhood. And so I think it's sort of about reframing what it is to be a progressive and liberal. And I think that, frankly, the National Democratic Party has let the Republicans frame us in many ways. What are some of those issues? Well, since you bring it up, we have totally gotten boxed into a corner on abortion rights. You know, that is, frankly, I would rather not think about what anybody is doing. It's nobody's business what I do. But the Republicans carved that issue out during Reagan's term. And 
I found when I was knocking on doors myself a few years ago, there were two things people wanted to know. Um, are you for abortion? And I don't know anybody who loves abortion. Um, are you for abortion? And how do you feel about guns? And we've let the Republicans completely define us on that. And so we are, it seems like we are almost always in a reactive mode instead of a proactive, let's define our message and let's put them on the defense. Okay. Um, when talking about support for candidates and target races, you identified, I believe, nine districts across the state that you would focus on if you'd been elected party chair. Mary, when I talked to her, talked about 10 races. Um, so very similar. Perhaps there's a lot of overlap. But what what were those nine districts that you see as, as priorities that are, are not being focused on enough? So I actually didn't carve out the nine, the number. I did not pull the districts. I just said we need six seats to get out of the super minority in the legislature in the, in the House. And so instead of throwing 90 candidates to the wind, which you still have to manage in some way or another, even if you don't have resources, they're going to be calling. Let's focus on eight to 10 seats where we can make enough of a difference to try to pull out of the super minority. I will tell you, Rutherford County is on the verge of being purple. Um you know, there was a, a woman over there named Kelly Northcutt who ran for the state house who did very well. Um, there is a Senate seat in Chattanooga. Now I'm blanking on the name of the guy who has it, but Christy Wilkinson ran it Todd Gardenhire. That seat is ripe for flipping. I think we should take a look at that. Um, so I did not actually carve out the eight to ten seats, but um, I did say we should be brutally realistic with candidates. If they if they come to us and want to run, I think we have to say, listen, here are the numbers. We don't have the resources. I think we have to talk to them the way I asked to be talked to a few years ago. Are you? We don't have any help for you. So love for you to do this. Love, but there are no resources. So you don't see it worthwhile to intentionally go out and try to recruit candidates for races that are that are not winnable. I think um, I think we put the call out, and if people want to answer the call, that's fine. But again, um, there is some miscommunication. Something is not uh, something is not making it from uh, party structure to candidate. When this many candidates feel embittered, and you know there were I think twenty candidates at least who signed a letter of support for me. Uh, mm-hmm. from local county commissioner up to congressional. So there's there's obviously a gap that is not uh, not being it's there's a gap between what the party is doing and what candidates are hearing. So if you have a pool of uh, resources, you know financial resources, time from staff, you would rather those resources be focused on those eight to ten races rather than, somewhat scattered across the state and then try to focus at the end on eight to 10. Yeah. If the Democratic Party could get out of the super minority, it's so hard to get anything done in the state house when you're in a super minority. You just can't get much done. And so if we could They can even... hold meetings with no Democrats there. Exactly. They, they don't even need us, actually. So if we could get, if we could pick off six seats, which I'll say that that's pretty ambitious because how many did we flip this time? One, two, well, it depends on the flipping versus gaining. I, I know Mary talked about flipping a couple, but there was only a net gain of right. one seat. So, I mean, that's going to take us, if we keep up like that, that's going to take us 12 years to get out of the super minority, and that is not acceptable. So my it gets back to the reason I ran. We keep trying the same tactics and picking up one seat a cycle. Um, it's not working. So 
what's going to be different next time? I, I like Mary personally, but again, that's part of the, okay, this is what we've been doing. Is it going to be the same thing next election cycle? What's going to change? What strategy is going to be different? So I want to push you on that a little bit in, in terms of the patience, because both you and Mary and pretty much everyone else recognizes that it's probably going to be a 20 or 30 year plan. I think it's going to take us 20 to 30 years to be back in a majority. Okay. So I don't, I don't know who the candidate is now who could win statewide, but people come out of the woodwork all the time. I don't think it's going to be in the next couple of years. Yeah. Sorry, James. I think it's tough. If you're looking at it as like a 20 or 30 year plan to get back into the majority, how do we know when we're being impatient and how do we know when we're on the right track? So it's a really long game. It is. Like I figure I will be 80 by the time we are in a majority again because we have to give we have to give some gains to people so that they can feel hope that mm-hmm. we are progressing and that is why after I lost in 2016 I looked at my county and I talked about this a lot when I was running for state chair on paper I looked like a good candidate for my district my father's family was one of the pioneer counties in Williamson County in the 1790s so my roots could not go any deeper you know my family I live in the same house that's been in my family since 1890 my you know dad was captain of the football team at Franklin High my mother was she was an elected official herself and um, I ran on what I considered a moderate platform talking about common sense issues that should matter to everybody and not fringe or idealistic issues and I got my butt handed to me. So I thought, well, you know what? It's been a while since Democrats ran. Mm -hmm. We've got to start the way the Republicans did back in the 80s. We've got to start picking off uh, even nonpartisan seats. We've got to start picking off the school board. We've got to start picking off the county commission and boards of mayor and aldermen and city councils. And I think if we could start picking off some of those seats and getting more Democrats seated, if people could even see that as progress, that that would be some type of gain because there are many areas that have no Democrat. Williamson County does not have a single Democratic elected official. So if we got two people elected next election cycle, that would be some progress there. And so you were the chair of the Democratic Party there. And and me from the outside looking at what you were able to do in Williamson County, running a slate of candidates for office that Democrats had not had a candidate Mm -hmm. in years. Twenty and Mary on the state level running a huge slate of candidates across the state, many in districts that hadn't had a candidate in years or decades. It looks similar, doesn't it? And you both had increases in turnout, and you both came up with basically nothing to show for it in the win column. I know Mary will, will point to the one-seat pickup, and you'll point to the huge turnout gains, but it, it looks similar. It does look similar, and that's why um, I recognize that, yeah, it's great to get 381% turnout Mm -hmm. and to get – we had 12 candidates run for county commission, but none of them won. So guess what? I will try a different strategy the next time that county commission race comes up. Instead of 12 candidates, we're going to pick probably two. We're going to do what I keep talking about doing the state house. There are a couple of seats that we should numerically be able to win. So instead of spreading out over 12, I'm probably going to pound on those two districts. And just like get focus best, resources, yes, yeah, start recruiting candidates now. Have them start joining if they're not already in civic organizations. Start having them build name recognition. Tr- start training them now, and then start just like pouring money in. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, did you get the impression f- during your campaign and and in the forums that you had with Mary? Did you get the impression that the TNDP will take that advice on the state level? 
I, I did not get that impression. Like I didn't um, – I heard Mary talk a lot about what she has done. I didn't hear about what's what's next. Okay. Yeah, I would like to have heard more about what are we going to do next. Is because, that sort of the primary lesson that you think needs to be learned is, is focusing resources? Yeah. I, I mean I feel like too often as Democrats we kind of gasp from one cycle to another and – what is the two-year plan? What's the five-year plan? What's the 10-year plan? And again, I, I hate to give credit to Republicans, but they have done this very well. And so I would have liked to have heard more from Mary um, what her plans were. And she said to me one day, well, you know, Holly, you're not in the office every day and you don't know what's going on. I was like, well, that's true. But there are only a half a dozen people in the office every day. And as a communications person, you could be doing a great job. But if you were not, if people don't know you're doing a great job, it Almost might as well not happen. It's the, if the tree is falling in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, um, you got to be able to tell the story, right? As a communications professional, what ideas do you have on that front? Well, you know, you and I were talking about this offline, and um, I feel like we are still running a 1990s communications program in a digital 2020 age. Um, press releases—they're fine. You can't expect to get stories out of them. Newspapers are, you know, Gannett's laying off again. We're seeing newspapers dying weekly, monthly, sometimes weekly. We can't count on media to carry our word for us. So we've got to create our own outlet and our own content. And I've talked a lot about it, and I hate to give them this much coverage, but the Tennessee Star is a right-wing publication that um, it's – I agree with almost none of their content. But they do a magnificent job of making Republicans look like these stalwart public servants, and they make Democrats look like boobs and fools. And I think we need to be creating our own content complete with digital memes, um, have some site that hosts the content. That, like, I just think we could do a much better job than we're doing. And Is that I something kind of that you want to start it. doing? Well, I'm going to start doing it one way or another, yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a great there's a great hunger for that. When I spoke around the state, like we've got to do a better job of telling our story and also telling the real story on the Republicans. Um, like you would see so many heads nod. People are Democrats are tired of getting punched in the face. <laughs> Anyone would get tired of that, right? <laughs> Going back to something that you suggested before, which is kind of recruiting more liberal candidates. I heard that frustration directed kind of towards the state party and towards Mary Mancini about the selection of Phil Bredesen and Carl Dean as the two top of the ticket candidates. And that struck me a little bit of, about kind of not knowing how these things work. I mean, if anything, they have much more control of the state party, of course, than, than the state party does of them. But how would Democrats go about getting more liberal candidates when the viability question is largely just money. And so Dean and Bredesen both had a lot of money, had ability to raise a lot of money at the state level and in Bredesen's case nationally. Who are these hypothetical candidates that would be viable on the statewide level who are more liberal? I think Madeline Rojero, the mayor of Knoxville, is interesting. She's considered... I think Carl Dean, to be fair, is probably more progressive and more liberal than people give him credit for, but he tends to not run that way. Again, the tree is falling in the forest. Well, I love Carl Dean, and he's very funny um, in small groups. So let's leave it at that. But um, yeah, Madeline Rojero is considered to be pretty progressive and liberal. She's a woman. Um, Would she raise as much money as Phil Bredesen? Probably not. But with all that money, he still lost by 11 percentage points. So. Mm Again, if one tactic is not working, try another one. 
going into your support against Mary, I think she ended up with like 48 votes and you got 19 votes. It was another butt whipping, folks. <laughs> well, I tried to keep track of where those votes were from, respectively, and saw that most of your support, I think with maybe two exceptions, came from Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because that is at the same time as one of the main critiques against Mary was that she was too Nashville-centric. And so you, I might have thought that a more Nashville-centric party chair would have done better in Middle Tennessee, but you sort of your core of support was here, largely from new members of the executive committee. Yes. Yeah, so there are about 30 new members of the executive committee this time, which is Huge, because there are people who've been on the executive. There, I think there are four people who were on the executive committee who were there when I worked at the State Democratic Party in 1988 and 89. Um, so most of my support was from Middle Tennessee, and you know they say that. Um, so there's some, some saying about people where you live know you best. They know you're good and they know your faults. Mm-hmm. So I think some of those. People might have seen some of Mary's faults more clearly than East, West Tennessee. They see my good points. Um, But again, except for one person, everybody who voted for me was new on the committee. And that is indicative of um, the desire for change. And I would say this. I was like really speechless when I started making calls to executive committee members to find how many of them think that things are going very well for the Democratic Party. And a lot of them did. Yes. Like many of them think things are going well and they are not every one of them. But I would say the majority are vastly disengaged from what the rank rank and file Democrats and particularly younger Democrats are thinking. Because let me tell you, if I hadn't run, there would have been somebody else. There was going to be somebody else running. And I I bit the line first. Uh, But, yeah, that's. I would have people say to me, well, things are going very well. And I said, well, how do you, what do you mean? And they'd say, well, we do more executive committee calls. And to me, like that means nothing. We're still getting our butts handed to us in electoral races. And, you know, I appreciate administrative work's got to be done. But man, if a political party isn't winning races, we might as well shut the doors. That seems to be the chief metric. Has to be. Winning races. I will say, Mary... Whoever is the TNDP chair takes a lot of heat for things they cannot control. Obviously, it is not Mary's fault that the state has turned this red. She's been chair for four years. This has been 20 years in the making. At least Democrats became very complacent because we held a majority from after Reconstruction until 10 years ago. Uh, so, but I, so I do think she takes a lot of blame for things that are not her fault. Um, I would lay more of the blame um, at the state party on the on the feet of the executive committee who think things are fine. And um, it reminds me of this book, Candide by Voltaire. Um, The main character, these terrible things happen to him. And he says he's always optimistic. It's the best. Everything's best in the best of all possible worlds. I'm like, well, we're in a super minority and there are counties that don't have any (laughs) Democratic elected officials and things are not fine. I mean, we didn't go backwards this time. So credit for that. However, uh, I think we got to see what happens in two years because I kept hearing through this election, things are getting better, things are getting better, things are getting better. Now, if we just pick up one seat next time um, and things aren't a lot better, I think there's going to be a mass mutiny. Will you be leading it again? Uh, no, I will not be running for chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party again. You have no interest? No, look, I'm I'm fine with the outcome. I knew it was going to be tough going into it. Um I, I'm not, you know, I'm 54 now. I'll be 56 then. And I say this, and I mean it. There are a lot of ways to lead change. Mm. 
And sometimes you were freer when you were not in that position. Frankly, I'm not sure I want to be accountable to the 66 members of the state Democratic Executive Committee because, you know, like I said, there are probably half of them who are interested in change. And I'll be honest, my perception is that there are half who, you know, think things are fine. And there were people I talked to when I was campaigning that said, listen, if you think things are fine, I'm not the person because I am going to shake some things up. There are going to be some things different. And it's amusing. I heard people say that I would create too much change. Um, that I was too close to big donors, but also that I don't have the ability to raise money, um, that I was too progressive because I didn't take my husband's last name, that I wasn't progressive enough, that I was too conservative, um, too wealthy and suburban, even though my house had one bathroom until, yeah, it was just, it was a fascinating process. And I left that feeling a little bit um, disheartened with the way the executive committee operates. Having said that, I'm not going away. There's plenty of work to be done. Williamson County hasn't elected anybody yet, so um, we'll keep trying to recruit and elect Democrats in Williamson County, and I'll keep working with the Merge Tennessee. You had this this exciting experience traveling around the state, talking to EC members, challenging Mary. What were your biggest takeaways that we haven't already touched on? Yeah, I mean, again, I think what stood out was the fact that so many executive committee members think that things are good and fine, and again, there is this very deep deep well of discontent and unhappiness. Just it's roiling out there. Um, And I do think it's hard to see when you're in Nashville because I lived in Nashville for a long time. It's a great place to be if you're a Democrat. And then you go to just about any other county besides Shelby. And um, yeah, I mean, you face literal discrimination if you're a Democrat. It's hard to get, sometimes impossible to get Democrats elected. And there is... um, there's a lot of anger, and I would say I sense a lot of uh, – there's a lot of anger amongst um, – I don't like the term millennials, but I would say voters and activists under 30 who feel like they are not being utilized correctly. Young Democrats, college Democrats, um, they want a bigger seat at the table. What does that look like? What What is utilizing a younger crop of activists look like? Um, you know, I think – For instance, college Democrats, at that age, that is a great place to get involved and actually work on campaigns and start getting some hands-on experience. And I think we have to make a more concerted effort because in this last election cycle between um, Governor Bredesen and Mayor Dean, those big campaigns, there were several congressional races, state house, every bit of talent in the state was sucked up and it was hard to find staffers. However, one of the things I've heard from some of the young Democrats is there were competent people who left the state early because they couldn't get hired or there wasn't enough work. So I think we've got to create some track for young people who are interested in politics to get sufficient training, whether it's working on a campaign or sending them to training programs. There's one called the Arena, which was started by a guy who used to live in Nashville. Um, There's the Wellstone Center up in Minnesota. Let's start getting them some training and let's start trying to match them up now. And let's recruit younger candidates. Makes sense. Your experiences running for state party chair sounds like you're you're very disenchanted with what you saw from the executive committee. Reminds me of a tweet from Representative Jason Powell. Um, I actually worked on his campaign back, oh. uh, I guess, 2014 cycle. He had this notion that he's going to introduce legislation to get rid of the Tennessee Democratic State Executive Committee. What does that look like? What would you replace it with? Is that anything that is possible or makes sense? So he actually brought that up. The three candidates who were running for state chair, Mary, myself, and Chris Hale, um, we all had to interview in front of the caucus. And that was the question 
that Representative Powell asked. He said, would you be amenable to either doing away with it or reshaping it or giving extra seats to the House caucus? Because the House caucus has one vote. And I got to tell you, those guys are down there slugging every damn day. And they they say they punch above their weight. And it's true. Those are some tough ladies and gentlemen. Um, And they should probably have a little bit more of a voice. So that was a pretty difficult question to to answer 48 hours before you were asking the executive committee to vote for you. But I do have enough Republican friends to know that they are fairly disenchanted with their own executive committee as well. So that there might be a way to get some bipartisan support to restructure it. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if you would change it to representatives from congressional districts instead of Senate districts. Um, I mean, it is a, it's a purely administrative organ, I would say, and not a political one. So um, theoretically, it should serve as a connector to county parties. But I often see that the executive committee members do not connect with the county parties and the county parties are out there floundering. So, yeah, I think that might have some potential. And I think there are a whole lot of people who would support a restructuring. Um, I I think we're going to see some other organizations spring up in the next few years um, independently of state parties. So you just mentioned the possibility of kind of a extra party uh, group that would come up, whether that be a PAC or an organization with members. You also mentioned sort of an alternative to the Tennessee Star mm-hmm. as a distribution channel for media and for information. Do you have a, a passion project? Where do you see yourself fitting into these well, different I, possibilities? I did. It used to be a newspaper reporter. I love communication. So I, I'm pretty passionate about coming up with some other news organ or outlet. That would be my passion project. Um, and again, even if these things happen, they should not, they should be complementary to the Tennessee Democratic Party. They should not be viewed as a competitor because, quite frankly, we don't have enough Democrats and Democratic support in Tennessee to be fighting. So I hope if these things do start rising up, they will be viewed as uh, additional support. Um, I do think Having worked at the state party myself, people misunderstand the role of the party. Um, it is largely process-oriented. Um, I think there are some things we could do differently to win seats, obviously, but I think people have high expect, higher expectations of the party than what it can do. Having said that, if I had been chair, I would try to drive the train in a different direction. Very interesting. Well, that's all the questions that I have for today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming in and look forward to seeing what you do next. Well, thank you, Ben. I will stay in touch with you. I always look forward to seeing what you are up to. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Ben. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the metropolitan government of Nashville and Davidson County.